Welcome into TYT, The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence, and I am joined by some incredible individuals. First off, it's Mustafa Tamiz, Democratic strategist who's worked on both sides of the aisle. This is the former consultant for the Department of Homeland Security, who was also named one of the top five political players to watch by Texas Monthly Magazine. Thank you for joining us, Mustafa. Thanks for having me. Now, Mustafa, not far from Texas is Georgia, which is slated to have its runoff election on January 5th, although early voting has kicked off, which is great. But the thing that is just so jarring right now is the fact that the stakes are so high as who's going to control the Senate is up in you know limbo. So what really resonates with you most about this race? Well, look, uh, Vice President Biden, now actually President-elect Biden, uh, won Georgia by 13,000 votes. Very, very slim margin. So this race is critical. And if Democrats pick up both Senate seats, uh, they would tie for, the, uh, for any kind of a Senate vote with our new Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. So we are a divided nation. Uh, in order to bring back some sanity to our politics, uh, we need the United States Senate, uh, and, and Georgia is basically all eyes are on it right now. Yeah, indeed. As you mentioned, the Senate right now, it stands at 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats. And if the Dems win both runoffs, the party will hold control of the Senate, which is awesome because we have VP-elect Kamala Harris to go ahead and break that. But if Republicans win one of the two races, they stay in power. And now one of the two races, we have Republican Senator David Perdue running for re-election. And so kind of how is he really hitting in terms of the Georgia electorate? Well, look, David Perdue's had a lot of issues this year, starting with his very odd scandal of his investments. While the rest of us didn't know about COVID, uh, David Perdue and his, and, and his uh, Kelly Loeffler, his, his Senate uh, uh, junior senator, uh, both knew about it. They started to making financial investments uh, moving money away from hospitality uh, investments that they had to try to uh, profit uh, from, from COVID-19. And it's just sad uh, that we have leadership like that at, at this kind of important time in our country when we should be coming together to, to deal with COVID-19. Uh, they have uh, launched a scorch earth campaign. Uh, Republicans uh, and Democrats combined will spend close to half a billion dollars in this runoff. Uh, but what concerns me is that 60% of that fundraising uh, is Republican. So they have a lead in the amount of money they're spending, putting out false ad, a lot of misinformation. Uh, and so I'm working on uh, the Blue Turnout Project in Georgia to try to mobilize uh, all Georgians. But really our focus is uh, Asian Americans and Latinos, which are, which are really the margin uh, that we need in order to be successful in Georgia. Wow. So talk to me a little bit more, because I don't think that this has really come to fruition and also has been at the top of the discussion topics in terms of the Asian American and the Latino vote. So tell me a little bit more about that in terms of Georgia. Well, look, across the South, we've just seen this phenomenal demographic shift. Uh, you know, Georgia is uh, moved in large part because of the great work with Stacey Abrams and in the African-American community, uh, which is about 30% of Georgia. It's, a, it's an important and significant move that's happened. What we need, though, in order to win, as I mentioned earlier, you know, 
President-elect Biden won Georgia by just 13,000 votes. Just think about that, 13,000 votes. So in order for us to be successful in this runoff, we have to mobilize all of that Democratic coalition. And a big part of that are Asian Americans and uh, people that come from Latin descent, not just from Mexico, but also from Puerto Rico. After the hurricanes that we saw uh, you know, uh, last year, a large part of the Puerto Rican population has moved into Georgia. There are new occupants in Georgia, new residents, uh, but they're citizens, they register to vote, and many of them were really the backbone in, in winning in Georgia uh, by that 13,000 slim margin. So we need to get back to those constituency and rally them and, and get them back out. Absolutely. And whew, when you say 13,000, all I can think is, wow, that's only just a few high schools. Like that is not such a huge margin. And yeah. so it really speaks to the power and the impact that comes with the demographic itself. So kind of, I guess, in what ways do you think that you can mobilize these groups more to let them know that their needs will be met if they vote for these Democratic candidates? Well, one, you know, we have to have a focus. Uh, in, in order to be successful, someone's got to be working on those. And so we've got, we've, we've talked to a lot of uh, coalition leaders in both communities uh, in Georgia. Uh, we are fundraising online. Uh, we're putting out digital ads. We're supporting uh, on-the-ground efforts in, in getting people out to vote. Because if you think about this, for most Americans, uh, in January, the election just happened in November. The fact that another election is happening in Georgia just seems very odd. And, and so there's a whole lot of awareness that has to be done. But at the same time, we have to remind people that the, the future of our nation uh, you know, cannot be held hostage by Mitch McConnell. Uh, and the only way to change that lockjam, only way to, you know, to to have a real meaningful uh, funding for for COVID-19 and healthcare, uh, to really bring back our nation and, and and change the norms of what they used to be, uh, the United States Senate is going to have to move, and and Georgia is the place to do it. Yes, and I know a lot of us are in very tense places right now, just hoping that the Senate moves because then we can make real significant change. And I'd like to move on to that other Republican candidate whose name you did mention, but whose name I generally prefer not to even reference, but Senator Kelly Loeffler. I know she faces Democrat Raphael Warnock in this special election. And so can you tell me what is the strategy in place to kind of boot her out of her position? Well, you know, uh, we were talking about Purdue earlier and we talked about the, the scandal. How ironic that both senators from Georgia are, are having a similar outlook in life where they're trying to protect their pocketbook, trying to profit uh, off an, of a, a, an epic proportion American catastrophe, which is uh, the pandemic. And so both of them have, have just... I mean, I, I, you know, there's a partisan element to this. I'm a Democrat, I support Democrats. Uh, I want Democrats to win. But if you just step away from to the partisan limit, it, it just shakes you to your roots to think that the leaders uh, that in the United States Senate uh, would be worried about, would use the information they've learned uh, about what's happening with the pandemic to profit for themselves. And, and at the same time, uh, neither one has led uh, on the issues of vaccination. Neither one is out there trying to bring us together. They continue to be divisive. They continue to uh, you, you know, put out information against both of the Democratic candidates, just, just untrue. Yeah, and it's also 
really impactful for me that Loeffler, I know her roots are kind of in Illinois, uh, you know, and it's great that she co-owns the Atlanta Dream. Uh, and I say that's great in terms of it's good to own a women's uh, basketball team. But at the same time, is there any kind of, I guess, real realization among those voters in Georgia, the fact that she's not really invested in Georgia and Georgia is just another stock opportunity for her? Yeah, well, 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 you hit around on the nail on the head, right? It, it is a, it literally is a stock opportunity for her. She's used her Senate seat to profit. Uh, her and her husband have, have made millions of dollars. Uh, and 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 yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, owning a women's team is uh, is important. And but you know, again, she she is not from there. She doesn't have the heart uh, for Georgians. Uh, she doesn't see a, a common future for all Georgians. And and she needs to be voted out. And what it's going to take to to get her out is not just uh, Democrats and progressives in Georgia, but we're also going to need the entire country to rally around that. Call your friends uh, that are in Georgia. Call your family members. Contribute to uh, you know the Blue Turnout Project or anything else uh, that that is working out there. It's going to take all of us to move this nation. And right now, Georgia is a place to to really focus on. Absolutely, and it is where we were all focusing on right now. Um, cause Hey, you know, the next four years can either be a struggle or be relatively stress-free free in terms of taking care of our nation and those who are in need the most. And so we only have a few minutes left, but I really wanted to ask you, what are people not seeing? What is being missed right now in this whole news cycle that you really want to elevate? Well, what's, what's going on, you know, today was the third day of early voting in Georgia. Uh, we're not seeing the, the kind of turnout numbers that we saw in the general election. Um, and I think that, you know, we're talking about the vaccine, which is a very important conversation to have. We're getting into the holiday season. They're going to suspend early voting just uh, for Christmas, uh, but then they're going to reignite, uh, restart the early voting. We're seeing a lot of uh, problems at the polls. Uh, we have a county that uh, put in half the number of uh, polling locations than they did in the general election. We have another county that actually put out enough voting locations, but it's taking people two hours to vote, even though there's so few people voting. So there's a lot of voting irregularities that, that concern us. The amount of money that Republicans are spending is a big concern. Uh, but at the end of the day, the American future is so important that all of us have to do everything we can. And right now it's it's Georgia. Indeed. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, can you tell people where they can find you? Uh, BlueTurnoutProject.com. That's what you, where you can find me. And if, you know, again, if you're looking for a way to get involved in Georgia, please consider us because we are looking to mobilize the Asian American community and the, and the Latinx community in Georgia that I think because Republicans are out raising us that people might forget. And we cannot forget and, and lift those voices up in Georgia because that's our path to success. Thank you, Mustafa Tamiz. Much appreciated. Thank you. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Adrian Lawrence, and right now I am joined by Yannick Giovanni Marshall, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. He completed his doctorate at Columbia University's Middle East, South Asia, and African Studies Department with a focus on African Studies. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, and so uh, it's my understanding you have a few things to say about Obama's comments in terms of defund the police. Educate us, please. 
Um, I don't like them. Um, I'm not a fan of um, efforts to minimize, distract from, and take away from the revolutionary or radical efforts of people on the ground in general, especially if it's from a the commander in chief of an imperialist state um, or pretty much anyone actually. It doesn't really matter who it is. It's just that. Um, in the interests of keeping black people alive and free from the harassment of settler colonial policing. Um, it is in all of our interests to, to do away with the political celebrity influencers that try to uh, minimize our cause. Absolutely. So I can understand this to a certain extent. I think that Obama's comments were a little bit focused more on uh, kind of the superficial as opposed to the message itself. Uh, so I had issue with that, but I also kind of in part take issue with people who criticize Obama just because I don't think the criticisms uh, necessarily fair on the scale in terms of which presidents get criticized. But I know you have a deeper understanding of the oppression from imperialist mindset. So please share more with us. Where does it come from that Obama wants to focus more on the use of the language of defund the police? I think, and he clarified his comments in, a, in another um interview. He said that uh, at some point um, it's important to be able to uh, assuage the fears of white folk that might think black people will be running out of control. Um, and so the primary audience of the comments seem to be um, white folk, whatever that means. And for me, um, that doesn't seem to be the most important focus of a movement that is trying to end uh, the arbitrary and discriminatory, uh, discriminatory practices of uh, the settler colonial institution that is the police. Um, and so, um, yes, I do understand that as black people in general, they have a target on, the, on their back, including the president, um, the former president. Um, but that is not my chief concern um, because uh, if the problem is having targets on our back unfairly, then I don't want to uh, contribute to uh, the special privileging of the the administrator of our oppression um, because he has decided to take that post um, that's on him. That's his own politics, that's his own belief. But I'm not um, going to contribute to the idea that uh, he is the only one that deserves to be treated unfairly, especially if his work is the maintenance of our continued oppression. Now, I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not that intimately familiar with the comments Obama made specifically on this issue, so I cannot refute or affirm uh, essentially the recantation that you've provided, but I can say that I completely agree with you otherwise, without question. Uh, the thought that we as black people need to assuage white fear that is founded in unfortunate stereotype and ignorance is not necessarily what I'm here to live my life for. And especially when the fact that we do have targets on our backs. And so can you talk a little bit about, given your background as a professor, kind of the imperialism and policing and how it intersects to hold us down as people of color? Um, well, the U.S. country or colony is not as as unique as it might um, as it might advertise itself to be. Um, Set of colonial institutions, especially ones that organize themselves around the, the philosophy and politics of white supremacy, um, whether that be in South Africa, whether that be in Israel, whether that be in um, former uh, Rhodesia, 
um, they generally have a tendency to target um, the native population, whether that be an indigenous or the native African population, to give them um, a, a life that is full of uh, extra uh, violence, um, that is extra imprisonment, extra exploitation and um, imprisoning, um, extra forms of discipline. That is just the general uh, technique of white supremacist settler colonialism. So even though America has uh, found its way to normalize this condition of white supremacist settler colonialism and called itself a country, and so separate from a place like um, apartheid South Africa, you will, if you were to take a nuanced, sober, and objective view, see a number of similarities between, say, um, the redlining in Chicago and uh, the reservation of Bantu stand systems in, in South Africa. Um, in the uh, frequency of uh, police shootings in uh, Johannesburg, um, in uh, apartheid South Africa, and what's happening in Detroit, what's happening in Wisconsin, elsewhere. And um, the vigilante or basically the white militia force that is also in support of um, the police, whether that be uh, the Proud Boys in America or the auxiliary forces in pretty much any white supremacist colony in the, in the world. Um, but especially in South Africa. So America seems to consider itself exceptional, but it's actually pretty much par for the course in terms of set of colonial white supremacy. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, that sounds absolutely accurate. And it's interesting because the things you've just described really suggest that they're all playing by the same playbook, playbook but they may be in a different time zone or hemisphere. Uh, yet America has this ideology and continues to reinforce it, the thought that we are so exceptional and unique when uh, we just like to dumb it down and to have a certain subset of our demographic uh, essentially operate under lies, which is unfortunate. And so in terms of your studies and your education, can you please share with us kind of what you think uh, America needs to do to get right? Well, I am uh, very pessimistic about the, the prospects of colonialism to kind of redeem itself into something that is equitable. I think that colonialism in general is a process of creating um, inequalities. So um, I don't know that America can right itself because America in itself, the institution of, of America is the dispossession of indigenous peoples. So it will be like asking what type of theft would be fair? Um, I don't see, I think inside of it, it kind of uh, presumes um, injustice in uh, its, its definition. So um, the question is not so much about what kind of national forces can be marshaled in order to do something um, useful for people, but what other orders of human relations can exist beyond uh, states, especially set of colonial states? What forms of uh, being, what forms of uh, imaginaries of the future can exist that do not depend on the original disposition of indigenous and the exploitation of, of black people? Um, once we start thinking of that as possible and natural and the only future that is sustainable for a number of reasons, including the, the, the uh, destruction of the climate, etc. Once we think of that, those new orders as possible, then I think we have a chance of doing something worthwhile. Other than that, um, trying to scrub uh, the racism of a clan hood is not really going to, going to free anybody. Well, um, and, and the thing is, I, I neither agree or disagree with you because I agree with you uh, in terms of being pessimistic, just for the fact, for the virtue of the fact that uh, we've essentially existed under these systems for hundreds of years. 
And this is just largely how it's worked, but it doesn't make it right, nor does it make it productive if we look for GDP and ways in which we can truly be a society that is functioning. Um, but in terms of making it better, and specifically as it concerns policing, what do you think could be done? I love um, phrases like defund the police. I think um, the richer uh, an abusive institution or abusive person becomes, the more opportunity that person or institution has to be able to uh, continue their abuse, especially continue their abuse with impunity or unchecked. Um, I love the idea of abolishing the police, um, to consider a world of uh, free from punitive orders and um, a world where uh, the destruction of bodies, of time, of lives, um, both on the side of what is considered crime and the side of, of what's considered criminal, has an entirely different or revolutionary way of, of, of ordering itself. And that would be useful as well. Um, but I'm personally an anti-colonialist. Um, I don't see um, any, like, it doesn't begin with me to say, okay, well, how does the colony get better? Um, that's not something that makes sense to me. Because it would be asking me, like, how can apartheid be reformed? Um, for me, apartheid is the problem. There's no better apartheid. You can't make it better. You can't uh, rinse it. You can't do anything about it. Um, and so uh, the apartheid, the imperialism, the colonialism that is the United States, I mean, I don't really believe that the United States is a country. I believe that countries are placed upon institutions, and these institutions themselves uh, continuously create oppression. But these oppressions are normalized because we start calling them uh, countries and start loving mountains and rivers and, and skies, when really what we're loving is the ability for the settler colonialists to continue um, oppression. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other story for another day. But basically, um, colonialism in itself does not have a function of redeeming itself. Or um, you would find in all of the colonies in the world, there was happy and wonderful um, natives um, smiling and laughing with their colonizers. That was never the case, not even rarely the case. That was never the case. And so I don't feel that uh, there should be hope for it here. Oh, my goodness. Well, wow, you hit a bunch of high notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Yannick Giovanni Marshall. Where can everyone find you on social media? Social media, um, I only have one thing on Twitter, and that's at Further Black, um, and that's it. I'm starting this social media thing very slowly. All right, then. That's plenty fine, because it sounds like you're doing a lot more in different areas, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much.